Welcome to the We Are SE podcast. This is Eric McKinney joined by Daryl Rideau. Uh, Daryl, we're going to go ahead and take a look back at, at this entire week of spring ball and then specifically look a little bit at, at Saturday's scrimmage too. And one of the things that, that really jumped out for me this week, looking at the offensive side of the ball, the offensive line, uh, I thought from Tuesday to Thursday, it was, it was basically a different group that came out. On, on Tuesday, you saw the defense just unload sort of a, a variety of different looks and, and blitzes. And, and it really put the offensive line back on their heels. We talked about uh, the, the coach Drevno and the offensive linemen have talked about simplifying things and we know where to go on every play, but you, you really saw on Tuesday when things got unloaded by the defense that there were some challenges there. And, and I thought Thursday, again, this is something where we're not in the huddle. We don't know sort of the game plan going into practices coaches have that ability to tweak things and say, Hey, let's put a ton of pressure on this guy or, or let's, you know, tilt, tilt the field a little bit towards one side or the other. But I thought on Thursday, it, it looked so much better, so much cleaner. And so again, it could be something where, you know, we're going to make it really hard on the offensive line on Tuesday. We're going to shift a little bat a little bit the other way, make the front seven on defense work a little bit harder on Thursday. But I, I did think it was one of those things where, Tuesday coming out of practice, it's like, oh, man, there are some serious worries about the offensive line. On Thursday, I thought it looked a little bit better. And, again, from the offensive line this spring, we've seen the same five guys out with that starting unit. Austin Jackson at left tackle, Elijah Vera Tucker. Next to him at left guard, Brett Nealon at center, Andrew Voorhees at right guard, and Jalen McKenzie at right tackle. And those there are two spots where you're kind of really looking at filling – gaps uh, of guys that left and that's a left guard and a right tackle and for me I've been really pleasantly surprised I guess maybe not even surprised just just pleased overall with what I've seen from from Vera Tucker at left guard and the way that Jalen McKenzie has stepped up I know he got some time at right tackle uh, at, at the end of the season last year but yeah. I think he's kind of solidified that's but I think it's still about getting all of those guys to play together. Brett Nealon obviously filling that spot uh, at center too. So you don't have like a pair of guys that have played significantly together uh, being guys next to each other. So, so you're trying to fill in gaps there and it was, it was going to take time. You've got a lot of veteran guys back on the defensive line. The defense is always ahead of the offense early on anyway. And so I don't think that I'm anywhere near sort of hitting a, a panic button. I think they still have, plenty of time and I think from what we've seen there has been improvement it's one of those things that, that you know practice starts spring ball starts and yep. the defense is, they haven't gotten everything in yet they're just going straight up with the offense and so the offense is going to look good once the defense starts introducing all this new stuff you're going to feel that regression a little bit with the offensive line right. I think maybe there was some some premature worry I still think the jury's a little bit out you know let let's see it in a real game in the fall but that's going to be the case after a five and seven season that's the case with every position Uh, but I'm curious what you saw on Saturday at the scrimmage where they were really let go in some kind of you know full game full tackle situations well, you know, just kind of going back to the narrative, and, and I thought that you were spot on um, with observation from Tuesday's practice as it progressed to Thursday and on to the week. I really believe, Eric, that the offense was really feeling themselves. And what I mean by that is they were starting to feel good about their progress. 
um, primarily of how they've been able to attack the defense. And, and as you stated, uh, during spring ball, coaches really want to go back to the basics on, on the fundamental side. And largely because, on the, at least on the defensive side, that's where the injuries really seem to have been um, be mounting up coming off of last season and into spring. Uh, a number of guys that you're going to count on for the fall aren't available. As a result, you're kind of mixing and matching and, and trying different things, but it also gives you a chance to get much needed depth. And it brought, it reminded me, Eric, of how, how much the offense was starting to progress and getting this false sense of pride that I'm reminded that, yes, defensive players and coaches on the defensive side have a lot of pride, too. There's a reason why they, too, are blue chip uh, three, four, five-star athletes um, in our own scholarship as well. I really think that the defense put it, uh, went into practice on that Tuesday with a chip on their shoulder. And under Clancy Pendergast, maybe instead of focusing on just their base installation, they turned up the heat. They started doing a couple of little stunts, things that the, that the offensive line hadn't had a chance to game plan for or prepare for. That reminded me of my senior year uh, in 2002 under Pete Carroll when the offense really started to gel and get going during spring. And Pete Carroll was working with Dwayne Walker um, as the defensive coordinator. And he says, okay, I tell you what, guys, the offense is getting their way with this. We're going to do this. We're going to blitz nine corners. You guys are on your own. We call it swamp thing. So we blitz both safeties off the edge in practice <laughs> against Norm Child in a two-on-two drill. Uh, both safeties off the edge. We flooded the middle, and Carson couldn't do anything but collapse the ball, and we forced the safety in practice. The, the defense went bananas, and that was the same kind of feel I got from, and maybe not to that extent, but that just little competition that we're starting to see with the defensive staff and, and um, Harold, uh, Graham Harrell on the offensive side, it's only going to foster greatness coming out of that. But, but with that inner competition between the coaches, Eric, as you alluded to, we're now starting to see as the offensive line starts to gel, it's going to take them time. But the more reps they get, the less they have to think about, the more they can focus on the spacing between them, how they make those steps, what are they disguising and giving away, those little tendencies that a defensive player can pick up on when you can tell that an offensive player, such as an offensive lineman, is in his own head. Is this a run play or is this a pass play? How much weight do I have down on my hand? You know, am I giving away a little bit on my kick steps back uh, in pass formation? Defensive players can pick those things up because they're the aggressor. And offensive players, when they're in a reactionary position, retreating on a pass play, that's what you see. So overall, what I saw on Saturday was a, an accumulation of everything that happened all week and then the weeks prior to that really kind of magnified um, in these simulated uh, scrimmage-like scenarios. It wasn't a true scrimmage, but instead it was more of a two-minute uh, two drill. And we got a chance to see uh, the coaches kind of get out of the way and just let the players play. And these uh, the prodigies on that offensive side have to be the receivers because they are dictating the pace and they're playing with a lot of swagger. And you can tell that they're abusing the corners who shouldn't be on the field, you know, um, during the fall, but they have to be here during spring. And they're giving um, very, very tough battles to guys like 
Isaac Taylor Stewart, who is forced to take a, more reps than he probably will during the fall camp because of the lack of depth. I love these inner battles, and I love what I'm seeing. But make no mistake about it, the offense had its weight early on during the scrimmage until the defense started to turn it up. The closer you got to the red zone, you really started to see those windows get tighter. Now, post-practice, Coach Clay Hilton, uh, Eric, spoke to how much he was pleased that for over 200 reps uh, accumulated throughout the week, the ball only hit the ground maybe once and only one interception. So he was very pleased with that. And, um, and, and you can build on that because that's the type of confidence it's going to take in order for this offense to become a well-fine-oiled machine as you get closer to the season. And you mentioned the wide receivers. I mean, we, we could talk forever about the wide receivers. I, I think they have been uh, great this spring. But I want to shift a little bit um, to, to the quarterbacks. Uh, that was something this week that I thought was really interesting. I, I don't think I, – I, I think JT Daniels has been very good this spring. I don't think he has just shot out past everybody else and said, this is, this is my job. Um, it, at this point, if I'm – giving the nod to anybody, it probably is to JT. Uh, I thought a couple guys who had really good weeks this week, um, I, I thought Matt Fink really stepped up. I thought he had a few good days. And I thought Keaton Slovis, uh, coming back after sitting out for a little bit, I thought he looked really good. I mean, he's another guy where we didn't know a ton about him throughout the recruiting process. Uh, USC sticks with him uh, after an early commitment. Um, he, even when Cliff Kingsbury came in, uh, even when Graham Harrell came in, uh, he was the guy. And you got the sense when Clay Helton could start talking about him publicly after signing day that they really liked what they had with him. And, you know, you, you talk about you bring JT Daniels in in the 2018 class. If Bryce Young sticks in the 2020 class, you talk about, OK, maybe you just need a, a sort of placeholder in that 2019 class. But this offense sort of resets everything that maybe you thought you knew about the type of player you need to succeed at USC. And I mm -hmm. think that you see that with some of the offers um, that have been extended in, in terms of kind of what you're looking for in a running back, what you're looking for in a wide receiver. And I think it's, again, uh, Graham Harrell talked about, hey, he's not behind anybody. He came in at the exact same time that all these other guys were learning this offense. I yes. was absolutely beyond shocked if he's legitimately in the mix to start this year. But I, you know, he's not he's not fourth bringing up the rear by a large margin. By, Which by you, you would you would think that though, right? Because of the amount of time that both Matt Fink, Jack Sears, and now JT Daniels has spent in this program in general, competing at the collegiate level. All of them have accumulated at least some time on the field, meaning Fink, Sears, and of course, Daniels as the starter. But, but if I may comment on this, okay, because uh, my perspective is a little bit maybe different from, from yours. And again, um, all throughout spring ball, you've seen a lot more than I have. But based on my observation and based on you know, re reading your, your post comments remarks uh, about the process, and then having a chance to kind of watch a little bit of the, um, the cut-ups of practices from these four quarterbacks. Here's my observation. Coming into this uh, spring ball, the narrative was 
that, okay, with the new offensive coordinator and Graham Harrell, it's going to be a clean slate. He doesn't know anybody, so he doesn't have any preferential treatment over anyone. So a guy like Jack Sears, who I thought coming into the Arizona State game when JT Daniels was going through the concussion protocol stages and, and was forced to sit out for a game, Jack Sears came in and played remarkable in the second half once he got his sea legs from underneath him. But that's not the case. Maybe the first week, if you were to take jersey numbers off of, off of the players, the, the four quarterbacks, there was no noticeable, distinctive leader. But as the playbook increasingly gets um, deeper, deeper, deeper into concepts and things of that nature, that's where you start to notice the student uh, separating from the gamer. And what I mean by that is, the, when the narrative was Jack Sears and, and um, JT Daniels going in, it no longer feels that way. What we're now starting to see is because it was a clean slate and everyone has equal opportunity to absorb the playbook and equal opportunity throughout this rotation of playing with both the, the starters and both the second string um, uh, in, in, throughout the practice rotations, we're now starting to see the reason why I believe JT Daniels is a clear-cut leader to at least start the season. And the reason being is because his ability to absorb this playbook, his, his understanding of what the concepts are, and because of the amount of time that he is um, that, that, that he is registered or recorded in game situations, he appears to be the most comfortable with making all the necessary checks. This offense is not predicated on traditionally deep passes, but more slants and intermediate routes. So if you can hit those windows, slants, intermediate routes, you are going to shine. If you're just the, the guy who's going to throw the long ball, you may wow us in practice, but that's not what the coaches want to see. This offense is predicated on the efficiency of moving the chains. And the reason why I believe that of the three outside of JT Daniels, if I'm focusing on Jack Sears and Matt Fink, and then, as you stated, the freshman Keaton Slovis. Slovis is surprisingly the leader of that second pack and has an opportunity to uh, anchor himself as the preeminent backup to JT Daniels, uh, um, barring any injuries. The reason why is because he does a phenomenal job of staying clean, doesn't throw interceptions, doesn't waste reps, and he hits those intermediate checking routes. He can throw to his left, throw to his right. He, he finds his windows um, within the pocket, Eric, and it seems to be impressing the coaches. They were surprised at um, how well he was prepared. But should we be that surprised, considering his offensive coordinator or the, or the one that he worked with most was Kurt Warner? And if we recall going back to the greatest show on turf, that's where Kurt Warner made his money, throwing those intermediate coming across the field and what I mean by that is the intermediate routes the high lows it'll be a dig which is deeper about 16 yards uh, up the field and usually that comes from the outside receiver position and then inside from the slot positions it's a drag that's going to be about maybe 12 to um, maybe 8 to 12 yards coming across the field high low one behind the safety one in front of the linebackers and those are the routes and windows that you have to hit if you're going to be a quarterback successful in this system. And then also knowing when to check down. Slovis appears to be more comfortable with that 
um, in his arsenal than the other two who, who would usually want to rely heavily upon their legs to extend plays as opposed to finding the, the outlet resource. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things I, I want to hit on there is things that I like that have been sort of implemented this spring for the quarterbacks. When, when we've seen it lately, seven-on-seven seven stuff, you've got equipment managers holding up, you know, tackling dummies at left tackle, center, and, and right tackle, just holding them in the air, simulating kind of defensive linemen, you know, with their arms up, batting stuff down, and, and just really shrinking windows for the quarterbacks, making them work that much harder during seven-on-seven seven stuff. And the other thing I really liked uh, that, that we've seen more and more is when there's wide receiver, defensive back, one-on-ones, the quarterbacks now have an option. If they don't like the route, if they don't like what, what it looks like there, they can check things down just to, you know, to, to like the next receiver who's waiting in line, just along the line of scrimmage. And it just it, it gives them sort of those game reps of during one-on-ones, you can't just sort of mindlessly throw it to the, to the guy who's running the route if that gets picked, if that gets knocked away, if that's not the good throw, you're wrong because you had the decision to check it down and make a better play. And so I, I love the way that they're bringing game-like reps, game yeah. situations to basically everything they're doing. And I like that they're doing that on special teams. We're seeing a lot of that stuff when they do special teams work. Now just in one-on-ones and seven-on-sevens, you're getting more and more of kind of the, the complete game brought in uh, and and speaking of that I want to jump to to the defensive side I know that's that's your side of the ball and I'm just curious I, I just kind of want to open it up to you what have you seen from the defense what what are some things overall um e- either just concepts or, or positions or, or things like that that have really jumped out to you well well um when you when you think about where the defense is right now and the health of the secondary many of the the safeties that you're going to be counting on aren't available to you. And as a result of that, it's impacting the defense's ability to truly showcase what it's capable of. So as a result of that, when I go into practice with my eye discipline, I'm no longer looking at the defense as a whole as it pertains to how the offense is succeeding against it. Because I think that somewhat that's fool's gold. But what I am looking at is those individual battles that you talked about. You know, the new defensive line uh, coach, and I'm going to try not to butcher his last name. I think it's pronounced uh, Coach Kahaha. We'll call him Coach K moving forward. But I heard someone say Kahaha when they pronounced it. So I'm going to go with Coach K because that's a a more safer uh, Sure position or perspective for me to take at this point until at least have a conversation with me. I love the inside battle. And going into the season, I thought that in a Clancy Pendergast defense, he likes to focus predominantly on working with veterans, seniors, guys that have have accumulated a lot of on-the-field playing time because those are players that he trusts. It's almost like he threw caution to the wind because I'm seeing the likes of of the 6'4", 260, maybe 270-pound freshman and um, uh, Drake Jackson out of Corona Centennial competing for as much playing time as um, a guy like Christian Rector, someone that was um, expecting to kind of fill in for that Porter Gustin role. And then inside, uh, another young uh, kid coming in, uh, Figueroa, 
Um, his first name strikes me right now. Nick Figueroa. Yeah, Nick Figueroa. I'm watching these guys come in, and it seems like they're understanding their concepts of how to use their hands and play with leverage is um, above where I'm normally accustomed to seeing freshmen come in. So as a result of that, we're able to watch these isolated matchups and see how they're competing against an offensive line, as you alluded to earlier, that is really starting to try to come together and they're, you know, they're, they're starting to gel. But there are still times where the offensive linemen are on different levels. They're not necessarily truly in sync. Sometimes they, their, their get-offs are a little faster, and as a result of that, it creates these inverted pockets. And that's when I'm seeing the defensive line, and in particular the interior part of the defensive line, take advantage of, of those holes. And they may not always get sacks or pressure because that's not what you want to do in, in practice. But what they're doing is you talked about constricting the windows. At times, it looked like the quarterbacks are having to move off the plane and readjust their windows because the defensive line is causing um, uh, the interior part of the line to collapse. And, and it really just, it could become disruptive. That's what you want to see. So those individual battles may not always be glaring, but you look for opportunities for the D-line to exploit. Um, in terms of the linebacking play, these linebackers are now being forced to line up, fan out a little bit more outside, and be held accountable more in the passing coverage. And that's a difference from years past where the defensive uh, – the, the linebackers were really um, <clears throat> around the line of scrimmage, hovering and really factored into uh, the pass rush and then retreated back. So it's kind of like a read and react. But now they're truly at the depth that they should be, between five and seven yards deep, and they're forced to now be held accountable to what happens in the passing game. And that could be primarily because of the youth of the rotation in the secondary. But more importantly, I think that the defense wants to become more well-rounded and, and, and really have texture to it. That's what I'm observing. Um, and the inner battles I notice most or when the offense gets closer into the red zone. The offense tends to have their way in between, in between the 20s, but the closer you get into the red zone, that's where the simulated football really kicks gear, and that's where I'm starting to notice how good this, off, uh, this defense can potentially become. Um, I'll tell you who's a monster and a potential first-round pick. Uh, Isaac Taylor Stewart, I know I mentioned his name earlier, but this kid with his size and his girth, um, at 6'2", 205 pounds, can run a 4-4, line up, play press man coverage. If he can put his game together, he's going to be a monster. And when you get an Elijah Griffin and some of the freshmen coming in opposite of him, I think the secondary could be the best that it has been in a long time since the Adoree Jackson days when, um, when we were really counting on him, um, maybe like that Sam Darnold first year. But this secondary – can be really, really good because of the amount of guys that, that they that have so much depth and versatility. Yeah, I, I want to hit the, the defensive line, like you mentioned. I, I think the defensive line has been terrific. I think that the fact that you're starting to get some real production, you know, a, a guy like Connor Murphy being able to step in there, Jacob Lichtenstein, we've seen some some stuff out of him. And this is missing uh, Trevor Trout, who's, who's right. the spring with a bicep injury. And I thought that this could be a spring where he could kind of take a step forward and we'll see if he can 
get in that mix in the fall. But when you add a, a, a Juco guy like, like Nick Figueroa, you add a true freshman with the capability of Drake Jackson, it, it just is sort of guy after guy that you can throw out there on the defensive line. And I think letting Christian Rector settle into that, you know, the, the predator spot that's now just kind of his defensive end spot. And, and then the other three, the three young guys that you can throw out there at that strong side linebacker spot the, where we saw Uchenna Nwosu really kind of come into his own there. Right. You've got a, a Hunter Eccles, Elijah Winston, Abdul Malik McClain. Those oh, I love McClain. Like his game. And, and they can just kind of go and go. They're, they're asked to drop into pass coverage a little bit, but that, that's a ton of pass rushing ability where you can kind of throw them in one after the other from that spot. And that really helps the defensive line. I think the guys that you expect to see right in the middle, Tui Pelotu and Tufele and, and Peely, those guys have not only taken their game up a notch just kind of physically with their presence, but emotionally too, verbally. I think we've heard, yes. heard more from them and they're really taking it upon themselves uh, to, to be the anchor of that entire defense. And I think Isaac Taylor Stewart too, like you mentioned him, he, he was the one guy for me coming into the spring where you knew you were missing just bodies and bodies in the secondary. Yep. But yep. if you came out of spring feeling really good about him, because you already feel pretty good about Elijah Griffin being out there. If you came out feeling really good about where Taylor Stewart was after the spring, I think you had a good feeling um, because you, you knew, you know, with the, the yellow jerseys with, with, Isaiah Polamau and Talanoa Hufunga, they might be held back because of the injuries. Uh, but those guys at safety, if you came out with your idea at corner being like, okay, hey, we, we've got the guy that, that stepped up there, mm-hmm. I think you felt pretty good. And so far, so good from, from Taylor Stewart. And then the and, last- and, I, and, and, and Eric, I'm sorry, um, if I may. Um, with Taylor Stewart, it was always more mental for him just sure. really being connected and dialed in. So if anyone is benefiting from these extra reps as a result of the lack of quality depth that is able to practice right now, it is him. He should be benefiting from this because now his learning curve gets accelerated. He doesn't have time to get in his own head. He has to let that next play go and line up because he's getting different body types thrown at him from a Devin Williams to a Michael Pittman Jr. Then he goes up against an Amon Ross St. Brown. Um, and those guys get chirpy with them. They try to get in his head because they know that he has to build callus. He has to become conditioned to, to handle the, the different body types, but more importantly, handle, handle the mental altercations that he has to go in and um, game in and game out against. It's those things that these receivers are able to enforce upon him that is going to make him a, real, a well-balanced a corner that is not only serviceable, but an impact player um, once this defense of secondary gets healthy enough for us to really see what they're capable of doing in the addition of the incoming freshmen during the fall. And I like, like you said, he gets Tyler Vaughn's and then Michael Pittman and then Devin Williams and those guys go after him and he, they, they get him occasionally, but I, I feel like there's been something in every practice where he's come out a winner against just about every one of those guys. He, he, is, he is absolutely making plays. And part of that, again, is because he is taking so many reps. And, you, and you're seeing the same thing from a guy like Britton Allen. Um, he yep. came in, and it is something where it's like, 
look, you're not a freshman anymore. You're in graduate school now. You're, you're going yes. with all of these wide receivers. He's had to grow up in a hurry. And again, I, I think it, it's, you look at the secondary and your immediate reaction is, man, there are not a lot of guys back there. But if you can get those guys that are there playing at a high level, I think you feel pretty good. And we're, you know, just over halfway through spring, I think there's still some time to see a little bit more out of these guys. Yeah, and with Britton Allen, though, um, expect him to play that a Jane Harris-like role. I think that role will be by committee, depending on what teams throw at you. If you need a bigger body, you know, um, it could be um, a Raymond Scott that plays that role. Or, you know, in terms of being playing that nickel spot in the box, but if Brendan Allen, with his size at six foot, 185 pounds, if he can get comfortable with playing in space like that, I think he gives you that hybrid look you need. Someone that's physical enough to play in the box, but has a, an understanding within his game to understand how to play in space. So I've been very intrigued with, with him. But the only thing you always wonder about Brendan Allen, Allen is you come all the way from Orlando, Florida. Now you're on this coast and, and, and just kind of commit to being a part of the team and grow with that. So let's beyond what he does on the field. Let's see how his body language adjusts to being on the West coast. Sure. And, and I think in that, that sort of nickel corner, we've seen Chase Williams a lot there. We've seen kind of Raymond Scott there. I, I think that's something where they're going to use that to try to bring some versatility to the defense uh, depending on what they've seen. And we've seen guys sort of flip a little bit and, and take a, a few different looks, um, uh, especially that middle linebacker. So we've seen, you know, John Houston and Jordan Iosefa there. I still think EA is, is potentially, you know, taking a look at, at Will and has the ability to play to play Mike going forward. So I, I think there's still some things that we'll see uh, during the rest of of spring um, from, from that whole thing. So last thing before we go, just, just open it up again. Anything specifically on Saturday from that scrimmage, um, either side of the ball, that, that you kind of took away and, and is having a, a lasting impression for you? Well, normally around this time of spring ball, as, as the weather starts to warm up, it becomes the groundhog's day of spring ball where things become repetitive and monotonous. Uh, but because the, this offense presents so many new challenges, it's intriguing to watch how the offense seems to be in some regards uh, ahead of the curve on a defense that is depleted. But whenever, and this is becomes very fragile because whenever you have a defense depleted of true starters that have communicated on the field and you have to put serviceable bodies in the secondary, guys that you know you're not going to have to rely upon during the season. The best example I can offer of this is um, number 13, Brandon Perdue, who's one of the reserve quarterbacks, but is being asked because of his experience at 6'4", 215, to maybe come in and play one of the safety roles in certain situations just to give bodies and depth. Well, we know he's a quarterback, so he's not accustomed to making communication calls or checks or even what to look for in terms of crackback. And in some cases, he's probably reading from a card but playing among starters. And there was an, a situation in the red zone, two-minute drill led by JT Daniels, where um, Jordan Iacefa was at one of the linebacker positions. One of the receivers motioned down, and he was covering – it had to be man coverage because he, he was responsible for covering um, Eric 
Chrome Hawk. If yeah, um, the the tight end. Well, one of the receivers chipped Iasefa, which freed up Cromenhawk, and Cromenhawk scored. And you can tell at that point, frustration mounted to the point where um, <clears throat> there was an altercation between Purdue and Iasefa, where where Iasefa had some very choice words for a Purdue who was playing one of the safety positions. Now, in all of my years, and I've been around uh, organized football for over 20-plus years, and I've never seen a defensive player turn and get into the face of his own teammate to the point where, you know, the, the, his own players had to break them up. The only other time that I've ever seen something close to that is when my senior year, uh, one of the cornerbacks failed to call a crackback on Troy Palomalo when a receiver hit Troy. And Troy got into his face to the point where he grabbed him by the face mask and reminded him as to why we needed to communicate. This one was a little different. This one was a little more hot and tempered. And you can tell that Ilsefa's frustration had really little to do with Purdue himself, but the fact that he didn't have all of his guys around. And as a result of that, he was exposed in practice because he didn't feel like he had the communication or the leverage that he would expect. The coaches had to remind him that, look, you need to focus on getting better yourself, but that type of demeanor isn't going to cut it this year. So the coaches have implemented something that I can appreciate, and I believe they referenced it as accountability drills. So if someone does something that can comprom uh, compromise the growth of the team, they're held accountable. And after practice, they're either doing up and downs as a team, or you know, if someone fumbles, they're going through fumble recovery drills. I love that because now players can hold themselves accountable and they know the eye in the sky is also watching. So it brings out the best in a person. But when you're in the dog days of spring and you want to compete at your highest level, you, you can only hope that the guy next to you is as prepared as you are. And because Iosefa may not have felt that, that he had that kind of communication that he would normally get from a, from a starting safety those frustrations showed on the football field. Now, it went overlooked by the coaches. I'm sure they addressed it um, in those huddles, but it certainly was something that was echoed and whispered amongst us in the media uh, forum. But we didn't want to overshadow the progress that was being made. But it's certain, certainly something to watch for uh, when you're rotating in guys that you know aren't going to play on, on Saturdays. Sure. I, I appreciate the look, Daryl. And uh, so, so that kind of wraps us three weeks of spring ball. That's nine practices, six more, uh, including next Saturday, uh, that a televised sort of spring showcase um, for, for USC. Uh, appreciate you tuning in this week to the We Are SC podcast. For Daryl Rideau, this is Eric McKinney.